Hello, and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man that reads along about his far more interesting adventures, Duncan Nickel. Duncan, you do yourself no credit. Although, actually, now that I think about it, this might be your way of saying that you're going to become the most important person in the universe. And then go mad with power? Oh, yes. Then we're going to go mad with power, yep. We have been reading The Never-Ending Story by Michael... You know what, I was about to say Ender. I was feeling real confident about it, and then my confidence just shattered. Ender. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it is Ender, because that's the German word for end. But now I'm not so sure. Let's go back and forth. Let's just call him Let's call him Mike. Ah, good old our buddy Mike. Yes it is. This is a never ending story, which was my pick for a book to represent mm-hmm. the eighties to me, written in nineteen seventy nine. And published in 1979, but written in 1974, right? Oh, gosh, you're absolutely right. This is even less 80s than I thought it was. Yeah, 19... No, 1979. 1979 in German. Yep, and Mm -hmm. 83 in good old English. And came to our shores in Great Britain in 84. Gosh, books have so much interesting information if you actually read the inside cover. But before we get into that, Geordie, you've been reading anything else recently? Oh, that's a very fine of you to ask, Duncan. Um, no, the, the Neverending Story has taken up actually quite a lot of my time, more than I expected, considering it's a children's book. Um, the issue is, and we can get into why, but this isn't a book that I could read on audiobook. I had to buy a physical copy, which meant, of course, going out and actually procuring one, and then uh, committing the time to actually sit down and read, as opposed to doing it while I'm, like, squatting at the gym. This is my first experience ever of bringing a book to the gym, and reading, sitting down and reading in between sets. But that meant I didn't have a lot of time for reading, but I have been enjoying some fantasy. Oh, go on. Yeah, I've been really, really enjoying uh, in the past two weeks the latter half of the newest season of The Legend of Vox Machina. Okay, okay. So I just watched the first season... And I've watched like mm-hmm. the first four episodes of this season in question. So please mm-hmm. be delicate with any spoilers involved when you're describing it. But yes, what did you think of the second half? I think it's really exceptional. I think it's extremely good. Like the Chroma Conclave arc was my favourite part of Critical Role ever. And so far, they've really improved on it. It's all about just cutting down the fat and making these like really surprising and potent changes in adaptation. That's good to hear. As someone who has never actually watched the original Critical Role, I'm just taking this in Mm. as like a a fantasy series. I still think it's of the highest kind of quality. The balance of, in terms of, you know, good animation, decent plotting, Mm -hmm. and just a real commitment to the fact that it is high fantasy. It's actually nice, because actually when I sat down and think about it, there aren't a lot of shows that go full on that kind of epic high fantasy route. Really, when yeah, I cause kind of watch that. Because when you're watching live action, you're constrained by so much budget, because how you show this like bright, colourful, imaginative world, it's kind of resigned to the role of animation. And I don't think it loses anything from being animated. I think that's one of the, the key things that I always get. Whenever people talk about adaptations, uh, one mm-hmm. thing I'm quite a big fan of, obviously, you know, like the Conan books, and people constantly mm-hmm. go, oh, we need a really good adaptation. Gosh, you need like a Game of Thrones style show. And I've always been there like, oh, can't it just be animated? Mm-hmm. Like, you could so easily recapture the character. You don't have to worry about 
people aging you know the budget <laughs> i i know so you know i've about to say the budget doesn't escalate depending on what you want to show it clearly does obviously it does but you can achieve more a lot more more characters you show and say if you had a regular character who was say like non-human kind of like that star trek issue isn't it you know mm-hmm. everyone has to kind of be humanoid in a suit because that's yeah, what the budget the dictates the, pro- the problem is and this is a great wonder of animation which is that it's cheaper in animation to build a castle to build a set like that but it's way more but it's way cheaper in live action to have your character change their shirt that's that's you know a good I mean? comparison Mm-hmm. so duncan what have you been reading in the meantime honestly very little once again this mm. book took up a surprising amount of my time and i think that's gonna be a really interesting thing to unpick i do just want to say yeah, i relate so much to reading a physical media between sets at the gym uh, when i last <laughs> I went to the gym a mere half decade ago now i <laughs> was reading comics at the time and i had this continuous issue to where i'd do a set quickly like read a bit and then I'd suddenly mm-hmm. go, oh, crap, it's been like four minutes. <laughs> Jump back up. Let's go, 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 go. Uh, it, That's funny. It was not very healthy. In the end, I got down to, um, I had to set myself like a, a panel count. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. you're going to stop. You get, you can click through like eight panels of your Red Sonja comic. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to just <laughs> stand up again. It's like, okay. Cool. That's funny. No, I've actually had a really good two weeks, and a not small part of that has been that I've had a really good time, successful time at the gym. I've, uh, I, I went through about six months of post-injury trying to find my feet again, and in that six months I didn't make any progress, and now I'm feeling way, way more confident about my ability in the gym, and in the past two weeks I've broken like four personal records. I'm oh, so proud to hear that from you, man. Mm-hmm. Keep up. I'm a... Uh... I am not. And that's okay. I, I, that, that is okay. Um, oh, sorry. There is something I tried to read uh, over the last two weeks. And I say use the word try because I, I discarded it. I um, went to my local library about two weeks ago and I saw a mm-hmm. Dead Space tie-in comic and a remake's coming out. And I just thought, cost me nothing? Yeah, let's see what that's like. Um, it's called Dead Space Salvage. Sure. It is amazingly awful oh no and it's not that i think the story is terrible it's just the fact that the i do not vibe with this whatever they're doing with the artwork here it genuinely Mm. looks like to me and i'm so sorry this isn't the case they've taken like they've taken the 3d models framed them up and then just applied filter after filter so they're basically like taking the model twisting it around to make it look what they want, taking an image of that and then putting it in the comic book. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Mm. Mm. And all the words, and I know this sounds very really basic, obviously, but like they don't use speech bubbles. They use different coloured text to try and help you associate who's saying what. I see. And it just messes with my eye. I can't follow conversations in it. I see, I um, see. And everything has this weird, like, blue mist filter on it to try and hide the fact that it's just, like, a CG model that they framed up. Um, So you don't even get, like, really cool moments of gore or, like... There's no wow moment. It's 
it's really sad because I, I was actually kind of excited picking it up. Like, yeah, you know, I like the Dead Space. I like the visual design. This Absolutely. could be really fun. And here's the thing about Dead Space set. It's all about grotesquery. It's all about the human body being twisted in awful, awful ways. Um, and I feel like when you get the chance to break away from computer models and the limitations of what, you know, a, a monster's hitbox could be, you could get really crazy and really imaginative. So it's pretty disappointing that it hasn't lived up to its um, lived up to its promise. Yeah, I think it's just a. It's weird to find to pick something up so many years later, because clearly you get the vibe that this was like a tying comic to the original release of the original game in like 07 and like no one was meant to be reading this 15 years <laughs> down the line. So Duncan, I mentioned adaptations in my section and I feel like that's something you're going to want to talk about because you have seen the film adaptation of A Neverending Story, which I think has contributed a lot to its fame. Uh, and I have never seen it. Uh, I wanted to, but I couldn't find time to commit to it. And so we are coming to this with from two frames of reference, one who has seen the adaptation and one who has not. Adaptation. Firstly, I want to get, just throw it out there. There's an amazing YouTuber, uh, Don Noble, who did a video talking about the adaptation and he goes into fantastic detail about all the small changes. But I think there's only one change that really needs to be addressed. Yeah. Duncan, Geordie, before we go any further, I just, want to, I just want to congratulate you on your growth as a person and as a podcaster in learning to pronounce the word adaptation. Um, this is a big step for you, I know. What did I used to say? Adaption. You've always, you've always said adaption. You've always said adaption. And I have let it slide all this time. And I'm so proud of you for finally growing up and moving on. Well, I'm glad you never get caught up on the Pacifics of the words I say. Um, it's really appreciated. <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you. So... This book was, in my copy, it was about 375 pages. Um, the film adapts pretty loyally, I would say, the first 175 pages of the book. Mm-hmm. And then it makes one decision that really radically changes the latter half of the book. And that is um, around page 175. The film decides to roll the credits. Sure. And... That's it. And it's funny because it's uh, a film that does have sequels, but the sequels are not about the latter half of the book. No, I have never seen the sequels. I have did a little Googling uh, before coming on today and speaking mm-hmm. to you, and apparently the second film takes some light imagery and character names from the second half, mm-hmm. but it does not follow the plot. Sure. Um, and apparently the third movie uh, has Jack Black in it, which actually kind of makes Whoa. me want to watch it. That's pretty great. I bet he'd be like a little troll. <laughs> I know, I have no idea what role he plays, but apparently it's like one of his earliest ever film credits. Is he like, like a is he like a child? I don't think so. I think he would still have been in his twenties, so I feel like people still would have seen it I because have no it's idea Jack how Black. Old Jack Black is. No. No. So clue I, at I think all. it might be I don't know the story of Jack Black that much. Did he did he start out as a musician and then move into film or was he a comedian? What is Jack oh, Black? Oh man, that's a good question. What is Jack Black? I think he might be like a fey creature from another realm. Well, this was one of his first forays into the film industry. I know his mum worked for NASA. That's a very. Uh, I can see Jack Black as a fey. He, mm-hmm. even as a kid, I was like, I think I remember watching School of Rock with him and being like, mm-hmm. this, this is a movie that's being made. 
by this lead actor. <laughs> That's um, true. There's no question of that. Mind you, I rewatched that movie fairly recently, like a couple of weeks ago, just just cause. And I appreciate it a lot more now that I actually know who any of the rock bands are. I still don't know who any of the rock bands are. I know. I was watching. I was thinking like, man, Duncan would not get this movie. This is just like our Kings of the Wild episode all over again. Don't. Uh, talking about Jack Black things, when I was younger, I played a video game called like Brutal Legend. Yeah. Which again yeah, yeah. is Jack Black in like this rock band world. And I mm-hmm. got, I knew playing it that everything was going over my head. Like, there would be moments, like, in the script where clearly it was, like, did, you know that thing, you know, in sitcoms where, like, they do the pause for laugh? And, mm-hmm. like, there would be a little beat, and I'd be there, like, that was a joke, but I, I don't know what it was. <laughs> now, enough about Jack Black. Let's talk about the never-ending story, Duncan. Yes. So, as I said, adaptation, it finishes early. Geordie, quickly, do you think you know what point the film probably ends when you were reading this book? Oh, yeah, I 100% do. Um, it's obviously it ends at a point that Atreyu hands over um, Orin to the childlike empress, and there has to be some sort of resolution. So presumably, um, Bastion does give her a new name and calls her Moonchild, but I reckon he probably doesn't enter the book. I think he probably just says it out loud, and they hear him, and then it ends, and he learns his lesson. Uh, completely bang on. They skip out the bit where Moonchild goes and visits saw the old man in the mountain. They have him do yeah, it in the phone I'm room. I'm not surprised. That would be pretty intense for all the kids watching. Exactly. And yeah, um, the uh, so this is a bit weird. At the end of the movie, uh, Falcor comes out of the book and Bastion I have goes for this. a ride on him. Um, and then that's yeah. it. It's like, way up into the sunset. That one probably upset the purists. I imagine so. But I would actually say, up until the very end, I think it's a mm-hmm. very good adaption, adaptation. Heck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I genuinely, scene for scene, the only bit that I read reading this book in that first section that I was like, oh, this is very much new, is the actual first meeting of... Atreyu and the Luck Dragon Falcor. Sure. Yeah, because I have a lot of images from it in my head through cultural osmosis. And my idea of what Falcor was, was like this sitting on a cloud, quite relaxed looking dragon, not caught up in an evil spider web. Yeah, that's completely cut. Um, when you're watching the movie, we go from the swamps of despair Mm-hmm. And essentially, I think they kind of rework it so that oh, I'm going to get this name wrong. The werewolf figure Grogaman. 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 His name like uh, I don't know about that man. Isn't Grogamor the lion? Here's the thing. I know I want to make fun of Duncan for not remembering names or mispronouncing names, but I haven't even tried to remember any names from this book. See the like, lion. It's way. It's so hard. Like, Zayide? Who's Zayide, Duncan? Zayide is the evil sorceress who's sort of the villain, sort of gets introduced at the three-quarter mark. Okay, and who are the three knights he meets along his journey? Hyderun, Hykerun, Hydlurlin. Well, that was actually way better than I expected, so Duncan, I take off my hat to you. Yeah, I'm thinking of Grograman, the lion. 
But what's the werewolf called? I am actively trying to look this up because I fully I, wrote in my notes. It's certainly like Groom, I think, or Groog, or something like that. It does start with a G, doesn't it? And an R sound, yeah, an O sound. Does. Yeah, Gamork. 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 Boy, howdy. Gamork is a, is a good scene. So so your thing goes from Swans of Despair to Gamork and then to Falcor? It goes from, uh, no, Swans of Despair. And then there is a scene yes. where Gamork is like chasing down Atreyu. And Atreyu like sure. climbs a tree to try to get away from him. And then Falcor mm-hmm. just swoops down and goes, I've got you, young man. And then goes straight to the Sphinx. Not to the Sphinx, to the gnomes. Interesting. Well, I mean, I guess that just speeds things up a little bit. That sounds fine as an adaptational change. There's one thing which I was really confused about, which was that I had been led to believe, and I want us to talk about the book, actually, but I feel like adaptation is a very good place to start. Um, I was really confused by the fact that I knew there was this iconic, like, talking mountain rock giant character, and he never showed up in the book. Yes, he did. Okay. Go ahead, Duncan. He is in the very first scene with the... Um, so, the messenger. Yeah, the, the rock, rock biter, biter messenger who has a stone bike that he ate on the way and the guy on the but racing... that's so... Snail. That's so strange because he's such an unimportant character. And when I first met him, I was like, is this the guy? Is this the guy? He's not quite what I've been described as. Um, but he never meets Atreyu and he's not an important character to the story. No. In the um, in the film, after Atreyu gets separated from Falcor and goes to the sort of mm-hmm. the city of evil things, mm-hmm. not its real name, I can't remember what it's called, um, mm-hmm. he bumps into him there and there's this really powerful sad scene in the movie where the rock biter's like, I was holding my friends in these strong hands, but they, the nothing, it came and it took my friends out of my hands. They look like such strong hands. And it's a really sad wow. and impactful scene. And uh, not in the book. That sounds that sounds really good. I wish that were in the book. Let's talk about the book, Duncan. So okay. the, the, I want to say the reason why I couldn't enjoy this book on audiobook. It does make quite a lot of sense. And I think you only have to read the first words of a book to understand why. Don't you agree? Yes. As this book has a lot of, I don't want to call it on-page, I don't say imagery, but it... I was going to say gags. <laughs> That's another way I put it. Um, what we're referring to, we're talking about, like, the opening bit of this book, it's the letters of a storefront, but we're seeing them mm-hmm. from behind, so they're mirrored on the page. Right. And you just can't translate that into audiobook. Exactly. You, there, and there are other points, like, when you just have, like, a jumble of letters on the page, and, like, how on earth would someone even pronounce that? The whole point is that it can't be pronounced. There's even a bit, um, and I even wondered this when I was reading my copy of the book, where mm-hmm. the start of every chapter... Well, I'm yes. The first letter of every chapter. The first letter of every chapter starts with a letter of the alphabet. So, chapter one is actually chapter A, really. And every chapter starts with a word corresponding to that letter. So chapter B begins with because. And chapter H starts with high in the air. And, and in my copy of this book, that first letter was a full page, like, art yes. piece. And at first I went, yes. oh, 
will this be the same in Georgie's copy? And then I got to near the end of the book and it's directly mm-hmm. referenced in text. I know. Yeah, it's so it's very odd, actually. Um, I don't really like the art, actually. Like, reading it, I'm like, okay, this is just fine. It looks extremely old at this point. I, I enjoyed it. it. It took me to a certain time and place, I think, from when this was mm-hmm. being written. And hats off to the translator of this book, a man called, and let's get this right, Ralph Manheim? Manheim? Manheim is a name. Then that's the name I'm going to apply. Ralph Manheim, who translated this from German. And I I have a bit of difficulty sometimes when you're praising a text that's been translated, because in many respects, technically the prose isn't the author's prose. Sure, sure. In this case, I'm just going to talk about it as if it is all Michael Ende's prose. Um, I mean, what it, else can you do? I mean, I, I enjoy so many series which have been um, have been translated. I've mentioned many times that one of my favourite books is The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, everyone knows I'm a big fan of, you know, manga as well, and all of those have to be translated. And I think that you can very much enjoy a story, even if it's not in its original language, because a good story translates well. Even if Sometimes some scenes don't literally translate well. A good translator can make it work. Agreed. And I just want to say, you know, that I appreciate here things like the letters and sort of the wordplay and all that that's mm-hmm. happening on the pages. Good job that it still works. Yeah. Uh, but it always it's a good makes... thing there isn't a chapter that starts with an umlau. <clears throat> I mean, in the original, there might be. Oh my God, we're missing content. We are chapter missing content. U is like tw- it's twice as long. <laughs> Content's and context um but to be fair i do think when they translate books it can't nearly be as hard as when they translate manga to both have to translate the meaning but also have it fit the exact same word bubble must be actually madness yeah there's this problem which translators have in manga which is that you know speech bubbles are easy because you have a white background you just crop out the japanese text and you input english text but when someone's thinking Sometimes the caption will just sit outside of a speech bubble, uh, which means that translators don't just have to replace the um, the Japanese text. They also need to redraw all the stuff in the background around the text. Oh, I know. I oh, mean, guys. not even from an ability and standpoint, but just from a... It's like saying, right, I've got to be in, in this tiny area. I need to make my artwork just mm. as good and mimic the style perfectly. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 hard. Like, and people do it for free. Like, there's 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 professionals who work at Viz, but also there's just fan translators. Like, one of my favorite manga series is Hajime no Ippo. Hajime no Ippo is fourteen hundred chap- chapters long and is never getting an English translation. So every single word of that book that's been translated into English has been done by dedicated fans. I, when I was younger, I used to read um, a little bit of a manga called GTA. Um, and there was okay. a fan translation before the official translation, and I I, read, mm-hmm. I was up to date with the fan translation. And then one day I went online to the uh, questionable website I went to, and they went. Um, so because they've announced there'll be official translation, we're actually stopping our work, you know. And we encourage mm. everyone to go and support the original creators. Um, sure, sure. And then I went to do the official translation. I was like, Nah, I don't know if I like this as much. The fans are giving people like slightly different voices or like little accents, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Nah, not the same. I won't bother reading this." Sure, 
uh, I will will say one more similar thing before moving on, actually talking about the book, which is that one of my favorite things about, um, about the idea of translation and adaptation is that, as you say, accent becomes an aspect of it. Like, how do you tell something about, like, class in your book when it might not even translate to another language so for example in um in a series i enjoy called comey can't communicate there's a character who's like a country bumpkin she's from the countryside and there are all these subtle clues in the um in the way in which the mangaka writes that character which tell a japanese audience this character's from the country um which do not translate to an english audience and so the translators have to start making it, like, cutting off the ends of words, like you're reading Rogue in an X-Men comic, like she's from Texas. Um, and then when the anime comes out and the English translation of it comes out, they do a full-on, like, redneck accent. So she's like, I hope no one finds out that I'm a country girl. <laughs> oh, that anyway, is Anyway, a lot of fun. No, yeah. that does sound like So let's talk art. about... So, no, 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 one other thing I feel say. Uh, Okay. You can cut my bit out of the edit if you hate it. And so I did. On with the show. So, Duncan. The never-ending story. The never-ending story. Let's talk about the framing device for this. Oh, okay. So the never-ending story opens not in the fantastical land of Fantastica, also known as Fantasia, Mm -hmm. if you watch the film, but Fantastica. It begins with the character of Bastion, who is a small boy... Bastion Balthasar books. And he what he does, he goes to a, a bookshop mm-hmm. and he has a small interaction with the bookshop owner who's a bit dismissive and he sees the never ending story lying there out of what the bookshop owner was reading. And on the front cover there's a black there's a, a robberous symbol of two snakes eating each other's tails mm-hmm. and he, he takes it. And he's now runs out. He doesn't quite know why he took it. And he's like, I am a thief. I, I don't know. I, what can I do? I can't go back to my dad. I, I can't go to school. What do I do? And so what he does, he, he does go to school, but he hides himself up in the school attic, mm-hmm. gets some blankets around him, and he starts to read the book because Bastion's not having a great life. You know, his, his mother recently passed away. He feels that his father's become very cold and drawing back from him mm-hmm. um, because of this. He doesn't have a lot of friends at school. Mm-hmm. and this fantasy will be his escapism from all yes. that's going on. Yeah, that's right. And that's what this book is fundamentally about, you know. It's about the process of reading a book, but it's also about escapism. It's also about trying to vanish into the world of a story. And a pretty decent look about, you know, at what point that's healthy and at what point that's unhealthy. Absolutely, um, yeah. This book is, is about... As you might expect from the fact it's about a world that goes into Fantastica. It's a book about books. It's a book about stories. It's a book about the way we treat stories in our everyday lives. Geordie, do you want to just, like, throw out there quickly, like, good, bad, mediocre? Where where do you actually stand on this book? Yeah, normally we cover this earlier. Um, look, whilst reading this book, I was like... It's very obvious that this is a good book, but honestly, it didn't leave much of an impression on me. I could appreciate the quality of it, and there were moments that stood out a lot, but I didn't feel a lot reading this book. Like, I never got that excited. 
I never got that invested in a lot of the characters. And I was like, God, this book is very long. How are you, Duncan? I think I was a fair bit more positive than that. I thought but you I might still be. had similar I still had similar issues um, with this book. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the escapism. I, I love the um that, that sort of meta world element of the framing narrative and going escaping to the story. I really yeah. enjoyed the analysis of the you know, what elements you should have, you know, how attached you get to these sort of fantastical worlds. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed individual scenes. And yep, this is quite said, an episodic tale. There were moments in this where I'm like, yes, I, I really enjoyed that. I, very episodic. And then at a halfway point, it stops being episodic. And I think it loses some of its quality there. I think I agree. My biggest issue with this is, you're right, it was a, it was a long book. Mm-hmm. In fact, I genuinely, referencing the film here, if it had cut off at the 175 page mark, where like the film cut off, mm-hmm. I think I would happily put it up alongside the Narnia books. Sure. Like, in terms of, like a child adventure, but with some deeper themes there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way the latter half of this book sort of expands on that, I think I'm going to walk away from the latter half of this book being like, oh yeah, I really like those ideas. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's quite interesting. It got quite dark in places. Yes, yes, yes. It's a very but dark book. I never. As you said, I never had a real emotional attachment to a lot of the characters and not always what was going on outside mm-hmm. Bastion. And to be honest, even near the end of the book, even Atreyu and Falkor, I struggled to keep up the same sort of character relationship because mm-hmm. I just got kind of detached. Fantastica is so weird. And like even comparing it to like something like You're Narnia. Right. Narnia, there's still like a grounding, there's a footing, there's a realism, there's a sense of consequence. Uh-huh. Fantastica is so just out there and so meant to be this abstract, it's the land of imagination. Absolutely. That I just I felt really I struggled. I had no footing. I just, I couldn't hold yeah. on to anything. That's why I didn't remember any characters' names because, like, I mean, there's no way these characters can be around for any any length of time long enough for me to, like, learn and care about them. They're not real characters. They're like props walking around. And did you, like, because I want to go, like, maybe that's the meta point being made. You know, Fantastica isn't filled with real people. You know, this is just caricatures as literature has. I mean, I don't know if I quite go that far. I think they are serving their intended purpose of representing the weird and the wonderful. But I don't know if I'd go as far as to say that they're hollow characters on purpose to make some sort of statement about his relation, Balthazar's relationship with, um, with the rest of the book. Sorry, can we just stop that? You, you're calling him Balthasar, not going with the real name? I don't know, man. Just leave me alone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Bastion relationship, no. I, and I kind of did recede on that. I did have that thought um, at one point, particularly when we were at the city with the lake of like salty tears. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it kind of petered out to the end where I was appreciating some of the ideas, but I was, wasn't really there for the journey. And yeah. I was very for much in a, all right, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I don't know if I was quite that bad with it, but I definitely had a point where I was just like, do you know what? If there wasn't another little episodic event, mm-hmm. I'd be cool with that. To briefly go into some more of like the framing device of the book, and we've already said a lot about it and that how it changes the halfway point, but I think there is something very interesting about the way in which 
this this not theme but this um this technique developed throughout the book which is when you start off the whole book is written in italics because whenever you're in the real world with bastion um it's indicating that there's a you know you're in a different space you have different rules and you hear things in bastion's voice and then when you're reading the literal book the never-ending story as a literal book that takes place within the story um and you're following the hero atreyu on his journey to find why the nothing this horrible um emptiness is spreading throughout the never-ending story or throughout the world of fantastica um you swap back and forth a lot so if bastian reflects on something in the text you follow Bastian's perspective on it, and he he will comment on the book, or he might go to the bathroom or something. It becomes about the process of reading a book and being swept away in an adventure. And one part that I really liked, I loved the fact that it talks very very clear early on that like Bastian, you know, when Bastian reads books, he it's like he sees the characters there in front of him. You know, his sort of internal uh-huh. imagery is so kind of strong. And like I like that, I related to that, I could kind of click with that. There were moments, though, where you're just there like, how does this world work? <laughs> because there are bits where a scene where Bastion like cries out in passion because he's reading this scene where Atreyu mm. and Falcor have been caught by this giant spider creature. And it says in the book, they heard the echo and it's meant to be Bastion's voice that they kind of heard in text. Sure, absolutely. And it's just one like, of the first hints that something else is going on. What happens if Bastion just flicked a page back and had to reread the paragraph? <laughs> well, we should get into that then. Yeah, because as you say, he has this interaction with the book. It, it's not just a book. It's essentially a portal into another realm. And his voice has gone through that portal. But... As the story goes along, this comes increasingly meta, where the point of Atreyu's journey to combat the nothing is that he has to find a new name for the childlike empress, for basically the deity of Fantastica. And in and and that leads him, piece by piece, following breadcrumbs, to have to find Bastion. Bastion has can come up with a new name for the childlike empress, calling her Moonchild, but he has no way to communicate with them because he's outside the book and they're inside it. And so, at a certain point, the childlike empress has to bring him into the story. And this is probably the best scene of the book. It's really surprisingly dark. It's incredibly cerebral and probably extremely challenging to any child who read this bit. Duncan, can you talk about the man in the mountain? Yes, I think I can. Um, okay, so this is sort of the climax of the first half of the story, and very understandably, it should be the climax of the book. Okay, opinions to be held. It's definitely one of the highlights. Uh, the childlike empress, who who's trying to get Bastion to say a new name uh-huh. out loud, goes to visit the man in the mountain, and. As he... Oh, God, fuck. How do I even explain this shit? Firstly, approach to the mountain, and it's the, you get the whole emphasis on the fact that the world is dying, the nothing has spread. This is kind of the last refuge mm-hmm. of Fantastica. 
and the childlike empress she has to climb up the mountain on these ladders and these ladders are icicle like letters and as she kind of climbs up she sees the message of like don't come here we can never meet Mm -hmm. between the old man and the childlike empress for the old man of the mountain lives in this weird egg thing (laughs) <laughs> and he is writing the never-ending story. Yeah, he's writing the book, the never-ending story, which Balthazar... Sorry, God, I don't know why I'm doing that. Which Bastion is reading. And But he's not. That's oh. the really messy thing. He's not reading the book that Bastion's reading. Because the Charlotte Empress goes to him and says, you must convince him, please, can you start again from the beginning? Mm-hmm. And he goes, okay, I'll start writing again from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's not the beginning of the intertext book. No. He starts rewriting the book that we're reading. Yes, right. So we're reading the never-ending story, the book the never-ending story, which happens to contain an opening chapter where where, where Bastion finds a book, also called the never-ending story, which is a portal into the realm of Fantastica. So you see him write the words in reverse and then say... This is what the sign looked like from the inside of a shop. And you follow Bastion. And Bastion is made to read this. And the best part about it is, essentially, they're torturing Bastion. <laughs> because he's now stuck in a time loop until he decides that he gives up and he's going to come in. And they just make him read the book over and over and over again. I I just don't understand. I'm like, so what's happening in Bastion's world? Like, what is this power? I feel like the moment he picked up... To be honest, to be quite honest, Jordi, and this is the bit that I'm going to go in so much more to unpick with you. Okay. The Neverwearing story, to me, seems more like an item out of a goose hump, pump book. Like, this is actually a horrifying thing for a child to come across. Oh, Goosebumps book. You you stuttered for a mm. moment. It sounded like you said a Goosebump book. And I was like, what the hell is happening here? <laughs> no, I see what you mean. Sure. It's something... I mean, it, it literally won't let you put it down sometimes. Um, And yeah, they kind of force him to shout out the name. But yeah, oh, God. And right, one second. Mm-hmm. They are mean... And they talk a lot about the importance of Fantastica existing because yeah. it's how ideas and humanity like interact. It's our like collective imaginary realm. Yeah, it's sort of like the collective unconscious. And the nothing is actually like... I felt like this idea wasn't explored enough, but the, but the nothing is like caused by people telling lies in the real world. Like, as the real world becomes dishonest, Fantasticans... Um, are swept into the nothing and turn into lies. So if Atreyu was ever to try and leave the book, actually I liked this book a bit a lot, this conundrum, is that if Atreyu was to try and leave the story in order to find Bastion in a real world, he could only do it by becoming a lie and therefore never be believed. Sort of, yes. I So... Is that to say that Atreyu would physically appear, but no one would like could ever no, believe him? No, he would him? appear in a metaphysical sense. He would enter into the world as an untruth. As in, the story of Atreyu doesn't really exist. Well, he exists as a story, but if you were to enter our world via plunging into the nothing, the form he would take in our world would be as a lie. He wouldn't be Atreyu, he would be a lie that was once Atreyu. So it's almost like Fantastica 
all our like imaginary ideas have to exist somewhere mm. and they can either exist as a lie and an untrue in our world or they can exist as an actual factually true in fantastic well not factually true but fantastically true if you see my point now actually that takes us straight to the end of the book and i this the end of the book actually redeemed a lot of it a lot because i really really liked the final chapter um especially like the last bit when he goes to see mr coriander again the box the bookshop owner and he says that you know like he asks will i ever meet the child like empress again uh and he says and he points around his shop and says there are so many ways to go to fantastica and you will meet the child like empress again but only if every time you give her a new name the point being that whilst you can never go into the same river twice you can never read the same book again and again have the same experience whenever you crack open a book that takes you on a fantastical adventure you are entering into fantastica you're entering into a fantastic realm of imagination i even took it a step forward sorry i even took it a step further than that and kind of interpreted it as him kind of saying like fantastica is described in the book as this realm without borders so I'm like, in from like an Atreyu mm. perspective, every fictional book exists somewhere like and is playing out at some place in Fantastica. I think it's a tad literal. That's a tad literal. Um, in reality, reality, I think in the internal spaces of the book, it's not a literal land of borders. I mean, when I when he said. My world doesn't have borders. I was like, yeah, dumb fuck. Your world's a globe. <laughs> um, but um, no, I think it's that. Every, the point is that every time you open a book, you would re-enter into a new version of Fantastica, which might be completely right. unrecognizable in some ways, but would well, fundamentally that, I, I actually the hadn't spirit. occurred to me that the world was might have been a globe. I, I genuinely interpreted that as it was an endless field of imagination. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're right, but that's how I took it in the moment. I was like, just take that flat earther. Um, so, yeah, what was I saying? But, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, let's. we should definitely talk about the second half of the book and how it changes. But the funny thing is, is that we don't tend to get bogged down into the details of books that often. We're not like, you know, like a lot of movie review podcasts where we, we go through the plot of a book state scene by scene we don't do that because books are a bit too long and a bit too complicated but for this book i barely even want to talk about like specific scenes because i feel like it's way more important to talk about like the themes and the meta text and stuff like that i can say this for some of the specific scenes uh i think the first half of the mm. book when we're following atreyu has some of the best and oh yeah particularly that one scene we referenced earlier he's meeting with like a mork the werewolf i agree it's so good such a well-written scene um mm-hmm. it's where we it's get perilous and it's it's scary um it's genuinely despairing and dark i genuinely had like a moment of small fright reading the bit mm-hmm. where i tell you thinks Gamork is dead and like his dead mm-hmm. body still takes a snap at him because he's so evil yeah and like locks his jaws on his leg i'm like oh no he is trapped and then nothing is closing in like it is a really Mm -hmm. nice scene um but and a lot of the adventure scenes i found in the first half of the book the the 
the going through this uh, somber despair, the the loss of his horse. Um, you can talk in this version. Talk in this version. Who talks in the book? And it's like sadly, mm. just like it's okay, master. Go on without me. I will sink into the bog. It's like I I thought it was going to be sadder. I mean, it was sad, but like people have really talked about this scene as being like completely heartbreaking. But it was like, man, buy horse. I hardly knew ye. It's more sad in the film because in the film it's just okay. an actual horse, and there's something about the idea of a real, just normal horse getting depressed. Oh, scene, which no. I think is sadder. Um, but I do feel mm. that when we get into that later part of the book, those individual scenes just get a little bit too out there. There's a particular one that just kind of annoyed me, and I think they're meant to be annoying, but they were just too annoying. And it's the... Gnomes? Sorry? The gnomes? Not the gnomes, no, the the schmoofs. Oh, the schmoofs. The schmoofs. Fuck the schmoofs. They were so annoying. God, I hate them. I know you're supposed to dislike them, but I was like, shut up. <laughs> Let's just move on. They're these giant butterfly things that are like, mm-hmm. all they can do is sort of like, they were originally with these slug things that were sad. They're the saddest creatures in all the world. And Bastion made them but feel made beautiful things. Beautiful things. And then they just become like these irresponsible, like petty children just fluttering about like, let's just have fun all day. Ho, ho, ho. And freaking hell, I really hope people will try and kill them. <laughs> uh, I know there's supposed to be a representation of a moral lesson of Bastion, but boy, how did I just like them. <laughs> anyway. Um, so so once we finish with Atreus' adventure, as we've said, Bastion is then pulled into the book by the Moonchild. And the book takes this enormous turn where it stops being this episodic adventure. It stops having any kind of, like, play with the metatext, because Bastion is now a part of the world, and he is given the necklace Auron. Auron, up till this point, has been a very subtle magical item, which, you know, it gives Atreyu luck. Uh, it gives him... It's a sign of respect to all creatures of... Um, all the creatures of... Fantastica? Fantastica. Which is really interesting, because it just it literally is just, like... He has impunity. People won't, um, even the most evil creatures in the world will respect him and won't do anything to him unless severely provoked, um, which feels like almost too powerful as an item, but actually it's implemented in really interesting ways because it means that he doesn't experience a lot of physical peril. Most of his peril comes from how to get to the places I need to go. I think it's most kind of best use is the scene when he first meets Falcor who mm-hmm. he meets caught up again in the giant spider's web and the giant spider's like mm-hmm. well obviously I-, I won't harm you you represent uh, the childlike empress who is the de facto god deity of this land that mm-hmm. everyone is like nope we do not question our supreme ruler um, mm-hmm. but he and then he's like well what about Falcor and it's like Falcor's not holding the necklace and that's a. I think it's a really good scene. I also like the fact that Itri basically says, "Okay, I won't save him. Like, I won't get involved." Yeah, it's really. There's a really interesting scene the way it shakes out because Falco becomes this essential part of the book, even more essential than I thought he'd been, given how like big a part of the movie. I know he sort of ends up being this iconic piece of imagery. Um, I like Falco a lot. He's nice. Um, 
And it's really interesting, as you say, that the spider won't kill um, won't kill Atreyu because he's a representative. But he does tell him, and this is so close to being like too much of a deus ex machina, but it works in the book because it's a book about magic and stories and stuff. But it says, well, when my po- I bite someone with my poisonous fangs, it gives them the magical ability to teleport anywhere in Fantastica. Uh, but they will always die an hour later. So he allows the spider to bite him, and he wishes to go where he needs to go, but because Falcor is also right there and has also been bitten, Falcor also just teleports along, and is like, you saved me by accident. I'm your best friend now. And they immediately get cured. Yes. Let's not think about it too much. She'll realize it's, it's a done. good scene. It's fine. Like it, it. I don't actually have problems with that scene. In almost any other book, I'd be like, "That's a bad scene, and it's stupid, and they shouldn't have done that." But in this book, it works really well. Even the immediately getting cured part, because Valkor is a luck dragon, and his magical ability is that he gives you luck. For some reason, I don't know why it is, but when I was like reading this version of Falcor, the main factor of him that i constantly was like oh yeah that's a thing is that he's meant to have like these like Mm -hmm. ruby red eyes Mm -hmm. but i could never see it and i don't know if this is what it's like in the film as anything more than literally his entire eyes blood red whoa no i i had the advantage there because i um the front cover of mine has falcor and i know it's different from yours because you keep saying page 175 is a halfway point and my book it's 205 so so i know we have different books but mine has like he does look a little goofy actually because he has these big eyes but quite small red specks in his eyes and also atreyu is just like caucasian he's not green that's weird my my cover doesn't even bother with atreyu it puts um, bastion on top of falcor and what we get is very traditional just a normal looking eye but obviously the um to the iris is that the outer color bit is that the middle bit no, it's the iris in the colour bit, yeah. He just has, like, slightly yeah. tinged red irises. But despite that visual, I pictured him as full-on. Like, it's a solid ruby in his eye. I don't know why. Mm, mm. Well, to it my fancy. Speaking of Auron, which was what we were talking about, um, Auron in the second part of the book, it turns out it has text on it, which Atreyu couldn't read because he's a fantastic and not a human. Um, and it's do as you wish and its power turns out to be not that it's a sign of respect its power tends to be that it grants wishes and now bastion emerges into this void and he has the ability to reshape fantastica exactly as he wishes and he does a lot of things which are interesting which is first he re and it's and it's really explicit in how it shows why he makes the wishes he does because when he makes fantastica he makes it to suit himself he makes himself the greatest most important hero of all and he fixes all the things which he thinks is wrong with him he makes himself handsome he makes himself strong he makes himself brave he makes himself a fierce warrior and for each kind of wish that he takes he forgets that he was ever anything different when he wishes himself to be brave, he forgets that he was ever scared. When he wishes himself to be strong, he forgets that he was ever weak. And the driving 
plot element throughout the second half of the book is that with each wish that Bastion makes, he forgets more about the real human world and who he is. Yeah, and um, and now and now we enter into the big theme, uh, because the thing is, we didn't. I mentioned very briefly about Atreyu earlier. Is that Atreyu is very much a stock heroic character he doesn't have a lot of complexity to him um he's just someone who goes on this adventure because he's good and he completes it because he's brave and smart and kind um he's exactly what you'd want in a fairy tale hero and that is quite on purpose not just from michael the author's point of view but also from the point of view of the text atreyu is literally written as a blank slate on purpose chosen by the childlike empress because he is a bit of a blank slate so that bastion can insert himself into atreyu and feel like a hero and want to live up to atreyu and want to be like him so we're basically saying so the childlike empress she sat there she knows she's dying she knows she needs to bring a human into the world and she's literally mm-hmm. like right you're too interesting. You have too much internal conflict. You know, you have a revenge mm-hmm. plot. I need someone completely fine and dull. Just the right amount. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Exactly. Which is fine. Deeply meta. And I, I think it, it works. Yeah, it is. It works because it's the whole point. Of the, like, that's the wider point. It does mean Atreyu is still, though, a little dull. And I do like the fact that in the later mm-hmm. half of the book... Do you know what Atreyu never really does? What? Go home. Talk about his family. <laughs> yeah he doesn't go home i feel like isn't it does he have a thing that's like oh i can't go home once i've accepted my quest he just doesn't right yeah he just doesn't a child like yeah. and there's even a bit oh, in the well. early part of the book where he has these visions of like he so his tribe hunt the great purple buffalo um and there's a bit early on where he like has these visions of like the buffalo he didn't kill on his hunt because he took the great quest instead mm-hmm. And I genuinely thought that would Mm -hmm. continue further into the book, but it it does very much completely get forgotten. Okay, so this is where the book, I think, gets a bit messed up. We jump to that. Okay. So it gets revealed that if Bastion doesn't wish himself to travel back to the human realm, he's doomed Mm -hmm. to eventually make all his wishes, forget who he is, and just Mm -hmm. wander Fantastica until he arrives at the city of lost or old emperors and Mm -hmm. just be trapped there forever. And, That's a bit of a madman. Yes. And do you know what? The Childlike Empress is freaking evil. <laughs> like, no one, <laughs> she doesn't warn him. No one warns him of this evil fate or that. It even makes it kind of clear to him that he has to go home to not go mad or to not lose yeah. himself. He's given no guidance. He gets a lot of warnings. I think they're small. Atreyu warns him, but Atreyu doesn't like know. Atreyu is just sort of there to be like maybe we shouldn't the the point of a story is interesting in that it's not like a i mean with the exception of the schmoofs it's not really like a be careful what you wish for it's more of a this is what happens when you when you live in a world of fantasy where you get everything you desire it's not like the wishes turn against him it's not like a monkey paw it's that when you get everything you want you turn into a real jerk <laughs> It's um, it's don't like lose yourself, and mm-hmm. I think one really cool thing with Bastion is that what he basically does—he wishes himself to be like the strongest in the land, but then he goes, "Oh, but I need to be able to prove that." So mm-hmm. he wishes up like 
horrors to try and fight just to prove he's the best. There's this great bit, and I think it, it, it demonstrates that really well, is that he travels with these knights, and one of them is one he, he's created. He's created everything again. And one of them is the greatest hero of all the land who's, who can beat any other knight. And essentially he creates him so that he can defeat him. But the thing is that he, he's his friend, you know, like, and he humiliates him in front of a crowd by, like, completely uh, outmatching him. And he ruins this guy's life because the princess guy's protecting is like, well, you fucking suck. I'm not interested in you now. Um, it resolves in quite a funny way. But when you're reading it, you're like, Jesus Christ, Bastion, what the fuck are you doing? This guy's your friend. I think there's a real comment on Bastion. Because we say, like, you know, he struggles... In the in the real world, you know, he struggles at school and he doesn't have that much friends, and mm-hmm. it's a, quite a harsh kind of look at. Yeah, I'm sure some of the other kids aren't very nice, but he also, if he was in the position, doesn't have mm-hmm. quite that social ability either. And you know, if he could, wouldn't be that nice, or isn't that nice as you kind of see in text? Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, like he doesn't have the heroic qualities of a tree because. And, and when he gets the power, he um he abuses it, and Atreyu never abuses his power. It all wraps up in the end when you know it's all you know it's it's a story for kids. It's about learning a lesson, and when he learns his lesson about about you have to earn the things which really matter. You know you have to struggle, and you can't just get what you want. You can't just wish for things. When he learns his lesson, he goes back to the real world, he goes back changed, you know, classic hero's journey. And it is quite satisfying, actually. Because at this point of the story, he literally becomes the villain. Like, he's he's full-on evil, and um, stabs Atreyu and stuff. Which was hard to see. And to be honest, that was probably the moment from, like, someone who's just saw the film, you're just really like... really surprisingly dark. Really surprisingly dark. It's Bastion, you know talks about and they talk about how many people die in this uh, sort of small civil war while this battle that takes place mm. uh, bastion sees the ivory tower the home of the child empress and atreyu like raises an army to fight him and uh-huh. it talks afterwards about like you know there there is more dead than alive and there's one character it who's like a genie who mm-hmm. dies like protecting like a magic belt mm-hmm. that bastion had and then later on Bastion loses it, but like he just leaves it behind in this bush he falls into and like yeah. forgets about it. And there's a specific line going, So in the end, the genie died for nothing. Like, shaking okay. my head. I'm shaking I'm my head in the disapproval. But yeah, it, it, you know, he learns his lesson. It, it's a nice demonstration of that. Like, he rebuilds the relationship with his father when he leaves and he gets a tray to forgive him. Um,. And, you know, he's, he's no longer as scared, and he's, he, he apologizes to Mr. Coriander for stealing his book. And it's, um, it, it's warm and nice in that way. It's just, um, I wish it didn't take that long to get to that point. I'm glad it got there. Duncan, who would you recommend this book to? Oh, so this is really hard, because obviously this is a book, this is a children's book. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, do I say, oh yeah, I recommend it to... Anyone reading The Hobbit or Narnia, mm-hmm. but it's kind of it's kind of a challenge because it, it's a hard. I feel book. like it's hard for kids. Some of the themes I'm actually in some it's the way it's written. This was not an easy read for me. Like no. this took me the full two weeks. I finished mm-hmm. it yesterday. Me too. Um, I finished it last night. I struggled 
And I'm thinking, do I recommend this more to an adult who maybe saw the movie and is curious about their childhood favourite? Mm. Um, because I'm not saying that you can give this to a child or they won't really enjoy this, but I would also have a very long list of other books I would want to give to a child first. Yeah, and I, I, would and... St- I struggle to imagine the child I know even who's a strong reader who would finish this book like it is really challenging and it has that huge change halfway through and i came to a solution to this if you'd like to hear it um i would love to okay i think does it involve cutting the book in half um it does not involve cutting the book in half and giving it to two separate twins uh, and having them separating them from each other, you know, sending one off with the mother and one with the father. And then uh, 20 years later, they finally meet again after I die and it's re- their existence is revealed to each other in my will. Uh, and then they put the books together and they find out that they were two, they're two parts of a story which fit together beautifully. And it becomes a metaphor for the rest of their existence of their two missing halves of themselves. No, it has nothing to do with that. That's plan B. That's plan B. What it... What it does um what i think this book is appropriate for is i think one day uh if i have a kid and that kid is like 11 years old this would probably be one of the last books i would read to them you know bedtime stories i think that this book is dark enough but not inappropriate for kids and i think it's the sort of thing that they would need to sort of be shoved along with in a situation where they can't put down a book and get bored and go on TikTok or whatever, they would need someone there by their side to make sure they read the book and to get the value out of it and to ask questions about some of the complicated themes that come up and deal with how dark it goes in certain directions. It's sort of a tough balance, isn't it, of a book that is both has some really dark themes and isn't the easiest to read, but has a level of like whimsicalness that you traditionally wouldn't necessarily give to a... You wouldn't expect maybe a teenager to engage with. Sure, and the main absolutely. character is is 10 or 12. Mm-hmm. Not that I can't remember. He's literally described as 10 or 12. <laughs> so yeah. your 11, I think, is a perfect age to pitch it to. Mm. I also think... How do I put this? I also think that the thing that makes this book quite special is that... I think it's probably the first example of this, and I hate to say it, this trope, you know? This idea of going into a a book and experiencing the adventure within, you know? Can you think of an earlier example of that? What, where the portal is literally a book? Yeah. Um, earlier than 79, earlier than 79. I'm going to have to say no. I can't think of any particularly famous examples. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually going back through like fairy tales now and trying to think if anything like that happens, but I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. And here's the thing is that I was actually in quite a positive position to really like this book because, Duncan, I've been really enjoying a musical that came out at the end of last year. Uh, it's also based on a book, a fantasy novel. The book and a musical are both called Between the Lines, and um, there was an, it was a favorite of an ex girlfriend of mine. So when the musical was coming out, I was like, I gotta check it out because I know because um, because I heard about the book and I love musicals, and it involves similar themes. You know, it's about living in a fantasy and coping with life by reading books. 
and having to move on and get over that and get on with your own life. And so I was in a position from enjoying that, which is clearly coming from coming from this book. You know, it's the exact same theme written 20 years later. And um, man, it, uh, I, it didn't improve my experience that I was primed to enjoy it. Wow. Yeah. And another... That, that is... If it's feeling harsh, man. I'm not gonna lie. Woof. Whoops. Um, yeah, that's a good musical, though. Uh, everyone should listen to it. It it was very, very unsuccessful. Like it it <laughs> it it stopped being run for like after I don't know, two months or something. Um, ooh, ooh, ooh. And 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 it's doing okay on Spotify. Like I can see when I started listening to it, it had like just 2,000 listens and now it's at like 12,000. So it's getting more popular. Listen, everyone, go fucking listen to this musical. It slaps. It's so good. Anyway, <laughs> the other comparison Gosh, I, I don't even really know what to add to that. The other thing um, I've got a comparison I've got to make, especially yeah. since it's, this is a German book, is um, Cornelia Funke's um, Inkheart, you know? Yes. Thank you. That came out later, though. Yeah, I know, man. Much later. I'm saying that this isn't obviously inspired Inkheart. <laughs> oh, okay. And yes. I remember enjoying Inkheart a lot more than I did this book. Um, my only experience of Inkheart is actually the film, so... Woof. Fucking woof, man. <laughs> the film is not about? very good. Brendan Fraser, mate. Yeah, Classic. I don't know about that, man. It's um, that's a very good book. We'll probably read it on this podcast. Um, but the funny thing I is feel... that like Brendan Fraser yeah. is a good actor, but the whole point of that book is that people have beautiful reading voices, and they and they they get and they speak so beautifully that things come out of the books into the real world. So why didn't they hire someone with a really beautiful reading voice? I'll um, I, all I can remember from that is that at the final scene where uh, the main. Uh, the only thing I can remember that film is when the main character at the end of the book is like writing on their arm and they're literally yelling they're like and thus they remember this and then the darkness ended and you're like cool mate chill don't think volume actually affects the power (laughs) um I don't think any I feel of like you've had such a you. kind of dreary tone on the everything story. I still am very happy that I read this, but you're right, I probably I'm never gonna reread it no. and I'm probably gonna rewatch the movie again and probably again after that. Um this had a weird you're right, it's just a weird kind of whimsical but kind of darkness and there were, and I do think it's a dreariness. Like when Bastion's at his lowest, mm-hmm. it is like a big, heavy grey blanket just kind of smothering down on gosh things are awful and it's Bastion's fault and you've been put in such a bad situation and sorry and you shouldn't have run off we gave you infinite power Didn't, <laughs> shouldn't you have known not to use it you feel um, way too much also, Bastion like as a jerk I don't know I have a bit more sympathy I also have sympathy for all the humans that are trapped in Fantastica because it's like a city full of them. Sure. And it's like, oh yeah, loads of people have tried to crown themselves emperors. And they instantly get all their powers zapped and mm. imprisoned here. And I'm the little monkey who tries to just make their lives happy again. It's like, okay. Dark. One thing that I did really enjoy, and this is a real positive, I hope you enjoyed this too, to kind of end on a higher note. Mm. Uh, did you really enjoy the fact that throughout the book we get those little bits where um, it's like... 
And then Charon travelled off and yeah. had other adventures. But that is another story. I did like that. It was a nice, it was a nice late motif. It even ties into the ending where it's like, you know, you know like the, the knight who bashed and humiliated, he created a quest for him. And it's like that became its own story. Uh, and that's great. And at the end, it's like, well, you can't leave Fantastica until all of those stories, those real stories, which exist in this realm, are brought to their end. And Bastion goes, oh, well, I can't do that. Um, I, I, I'm losing myself. So Atreyu volunteers to do it for him. And I like the fact that those stories are going to be completed and Atreyu will serve as witness to those stories. And of course, the ending of this book is just such an ending. You know, it's saying that. And Bastion's story um, goes on and on, but that's a story for another time. Uh, sorry, that Thousand Ware was never told. No, no. I mean, um, I don't think it actually would be a good story. No. Uh, but still, a dark reminder of how was anyone meant to actually beat the system without a good friend in Fantastica? But then mm. I figured, well, actually, probably the whole point is that the childlike empress always picks out a, a companion who will do this for you. Just like Elric. Indeed. Yeah. Duncan, before yes. we wrap up, at the back of my book... The, you know, it, it knows it's a book for kids, so it has, like, quizzes and stuff. Do you want to see how well you do at the quiz? Oh, come on. Yes. All right. So, the first quiz is called Guess Who. I'm going to read a verbal description of a character, and you have to try and guess who that character is. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, there, in a high-worn leather chair, sat a short, stout man in a rumpled black suit. His paunch was held in by a vest. He was bald except for the outcropping of white hair over his ears. Uh, is this, this is the bookseller, Mr. Coriander? You mean coriander, an actual word? Yes. All right. You don't cook of coriander? I, well, I just didn't think it would be pronounced that way. All right, whatever. This is book, mate. Don't know what is that he, even means. Yes, Mr. Coriander. Well done. Coriander. Don't. What did I say? Coriander. You say coriander. Coriander. Yes. His long, graceful body with its pearly pink and white scales hung and tangled and twisted. Oh, Falcor. Yeah. I did not realize that he was partially pink. That's new. I imagine him as mostly white. Actually, I imagine. I now see. Like, I, I'm now giving him like a pink underbelly. He stood up and stretched and trotted around the cave. His fur shone more and more brightly. Uh, in the colours of a mosaic floor. Ah, uh, this is Gogoman. Yeah, uh, well done. Desert Lion. Gogomore. I'm doing good Gogomar, at this. But yeah. Well done, yeah. Uh, the other ones are way too easy, so I'm skipping it. What type of dragon is lo- is Falcor? Did you not just say a luck dragon? I didn't see nothing. Yeah, he's a luck dragon. Well done. Uh, what kind of creatures are Engiwuk and Urgle? Oh. Gnomes. Well done. Uh, They're the names of the Sphinx. Okay. What inscription does Bastion discover on the back of Orin? We've literally just said that, but actually I I'm know. calling it. It's, it's, it's like, it's even make your wishes. No, it's like, wish it and it will be, or, oh. Oof. May your wishes guide you, you know. Wish. Make a wish. Is that your final answer? Yes. It is not. Now, I have to be saying... I haven't been doing this because you've been answering too fast and too easily, but actually you do have options of A, B, C, and D. So would you like to hear your options? 
Yes, please. Okay. I'm going to beat this quiz designed for 11-year-olds. Fly away and be free. Take what you want. BBB. Or do as you wish. Do as you wish. What is the name given to a childlike empress by Bastion? Moonchild, which, interesting enough, in the movie, Bastion insinuates that was his mother's name, which is a bit weird. Yeah. There's a bit, before he rings out, he goes, my mother had a beautiful name. And, and coincidentally, yeah. here's another one. Uh, maybe her name was Saloon Youngman. I'm assuming it would have been something books. No, because his dad, whatever. Um, oh, books. Fuck, his name is books, isn't it? Yes. I thought it was it's a bugs. pun. Yeah, that's stupid. Anyway, final one. This is actually question one, but it's the hardest one by far. What lesson does Bastion miss in order to read his book? Is it A, English, B, Geography, C, History, or D, Mathematics? B, Geography. I thought so too, but it's not. It's History. Oh, he definitely mentions Geography at some point. No, I feel like this is such stupid, because I'm pretty sure he misses all these lessons, right? Like, he misses it all say, of them, yeah. Yeah, it says, what lesson does he miss in order to read his book? It's all of them. He misses all his lessons. Fuck you, book. Books are dumb. Can't stand these types of quizzes. Making us feel dumb. Yeah. We're smart. Quest for a le- to test for 11-year-olds. Well, Jordy, I think we have spoken very well about the never-ending story, but it's not just about what we think. Oh, no, no. Absolutely not. It's also about what all our listeners think, and we really do encourage people to get in touch and tell us your thoughts, particularly the never-ending story, because if you have read it, I'd love to hear what you're taking it. Did you read it before or after seeing the film? Was it a childhood favourite? Please reach out to us. You can do it at our Gmail, it's just fancy podcast at gmail.com, or on our Instagram, it's just fancy podcast. And also do please follow us on Instagram while you're there. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that's over, to be honest. It was um it was one that I picked up from like a um I think it was like a bookstore at a fair. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've heard of this film and I I really to pick it as like there yeah, this is my fantasy of the eighties and it's not even technically that. So we have to find something I else, don't know. man. Do you? How do you think it defines the seventies? Then, like, that's the not whole point of this, right? Yo, you don't think it does? It, at it's all? not a seventies. It doesn't define the seventies. This is the. To be honest, the film I think did more to define fantasy film and the film landscape than mm-hmm. the, I think this book actually ultimately had an impact on the fantasy landscape. Interesting. Not that it didn't have an impact, just that I, when I think of eighties fantasy, I often think about this is the time where we're starting to move into that more adult orientated work. This is when Black Company starts, you know. This is where I believe the first um in Stephen King's uh Black Tower series starts mm. in the eighties. Like we're moving in that direction. This is the last of that kind of really whimsical Narnia train. Sure. So what you're saying is it's been a gigantic failure. Oh, on all accounts. Oh oh good. Oh good good good. So, nope, Duncan... your job to save it. Yes, it's time for me to choose. But before I make my choice, Duncan, about what we're going to read in two weeks, I'd like to propose a mini-episode. Go ahead. I think something that we could have different perspectives on and have a fruitful discussion about is The Legend of Vox Machina. I think we should have a chat about that. I'm very happy to do so. Yeah, I, I think I, next it's week... It's been a really great show. 
let's get together. I want you to finish season two, and then let's talk about it. Be my pleasure. Because it's an ad- it's an adaptation. It makes a lot of adaptational changes, and I think it'd be really interesting to talk to someone who has no idea what these adaptational changes are. Because oh, it really does impact your enjoyment. Yeah, no, it does. It impacts your enjoyment and your sort of interpretation of a work or a show. You know, Absolutely. people talk so much about, so... particularly books to films. Mm-hmm. Like, I have such a different opinion. Like, I can't imagine reading Lord of the Rings before having seen Lord of the Rings, the movies. Sure. You know, they had such an impact. And so when I read the books, so much of those books was defined by that wasn't in the film. Or well, that happened mm-hmm. in a different place in the film. I can't can't dissociate that. It also makes you often go, I find, um, not to go down too much of a tangent, do you mm-hmm. never feel that when you see an adaptation first and then you read the book and something's been cut out, do you ever have that moment where you're like, you know, I can see why they did that. I mean, I can if I can see why they did that. Um, a lot I of feel people it, it, it puts, a, puts well a magnifying glass on it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, I think, just don't cope well with adaptation. They don't understand why something needs to be changed. Um, then again, there's also, like, the Northern Lights and its film adaptation. And you're like, yeah, maybe something should never be adapted. Anyway. Um, sorry, on that point, I just want to say that the um, Here's Dark Materials is an excellent TV show. Oh, the that's right, yes. coming out. I highly recommend it. I've been loving it. That's right, I forgot about that. So, but for two weeks' time, we are going to be reading... I, You know what? I think we just need to read, like, an easy, fun book, you know? I think we need to just have a simple book. Because for the record, had... I really thought Never Ending Story meant for 11-year-olds would be that book. Yeah, well, I didn't. So, <laughs> next up is... um, We've had Stranger Nora, which is quite long and cerebral. We've had this book, which is pretty long and cerebral so a breezy easy read we're going to be reading a deadly education by naomi novik right um my my understanding of this this book it has been sold to me by um by a girl i met on bumble she says it's very good um it's from the scolomance series and it's basically like I'm pretty sure it's slightly edgier Hogwarts. It's like you can learn magic at an evil school that's like full of demons. You have to fight demons or whatever. I can get behind that. I can get yeah. behind that. So yeah, I'll be honest. When it's... you just gave me the title, I, I imagined it as something like High School of the Dead. <laughs> but yes, that makes much more sense. Well, fantasy go. <laughs> well, we shall see, won't we? All right. Well, looking forward to it. I've never read any of this book. I've had it on my um. I've had it on my phone as an audiobook since before we read Stranger Nora, but I haven't started it yet. Well, I look forward to discussing it with you at our next book club. I'll so until that time, have a good one, mate. Alrighty. So long. Bye-bye. Bye.